thing that makes the average citizen puke. And look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? The red countries are the countries we sell arms to. The green countries are the countries where we wash our money. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. In five, four, three, two. The evil has gone. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. Happy New Year to you. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. And so, we had a plan. We had some sort of idea for what we wanted the first episode of the new year, the new decade to be. But uh, the the commander-in-chief of the United States decided to scuttle that plan, and now we have a new episode uh, to bring in the year 2020. We're going to talk about Iran. We're going to talk about an organization called United Against a Nuclear Iran, and we're going to talk about a billionaire named Thomas Kaplan, who is one of the main founders of that organization. And we're doing this because you might have heard the news that on January 3rd, uh, 2020, the United States uh, decided to start World War III. Or maybe not even that much, but we decided to blow up the second most powerful person in Iran, leaving the airport in Baghdad. Yeah, at an international airport. (laughs) Not not in a convoy out in the desert like in those videos you see, but like if there were a drone strike in the middle of JFK. Like a, yeah, like Denver International Airport. Yeah. Just being the person like leaving the airport and seeing that explosion being like, <laughs> fuck, it's going to take forever to get an Uber now. <laughs> and Like, God, I got to, they're going to do surge pricing. I just want to get to my mother-in-law's. And the U.S. just dropped a fucking Tomahawk <laughs> missile on the Uber pickup area. <laughs> just, my Uber driver just left. <laughs> weird like all pretenses of uh the co- of the drone program being a covert precision operation just lost when they're just shooting missiles at an airport mm-hmm. and they didn't uh i mean it's already a violation of what passes for international law yeah it's just on the yeah. face of it but they also didn't allow the they didn't tell the iraqi security forces that this was happening beforehand <laughs> We're there to protect them and yeah. liberate them. And like one of, well, one of the the local Iraqi militia, like a popular militia leader, mm-hmm. also died in the blast. Well, you see, what the the purpose of this is, we're in Iraq to increase their self determination, mm-hmm. and uh, we want we want to give Iraq back to the Iraqis uh, is our main goal there. Right, which is why the Iraqi parliament has just passed uh, legislation demanding all U.S. troops leave, and we're just going to ignore that. That's not going to be obeyed. This democracy we just created is telling us to get the fuck out. But, you know, like Steve just said, so not only did we not tell the Iraqis we were going to do this, we didn't tell the U.S. Congress either. Uh, He didn't inform the U.S. Congress, but he did inform Israel— Several days in advance, according to press reports, that this was going to happen. Uh, and if you talk about that, you are anti-Semitic. <laughs> so don't get any fucking ideas about who might have been uh, suggesting or benefiting from this operation. My favorite thing about the uh, right before the strike, when the embassy was taken, was the people who were uh, crying about how expensive the embassy was. They're like, oh, no, this is the most expensive American embassy. It's like, yeah, because it was built with a 500% markup to the contractors. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure fucking KBR cleared uh, uh, some great fourth quarter returns on that one. Yeah. 
So it could be a, a pretty different world by the time you actually hear this recording. Right. Well, that's the thing. So we're recording this Sunday, uh, January 5th, and like just today we've gotten the news that Customs and Border Patrol has been ordered to detain all suspicious Iranians entering this country. Uh, Jesus Christ. Including, regardless of citizenship status. Uh, so there's like reports that at least 60 people have been detained by this. Um, uh, Soleimani, according to other reports, was there in Baghdad to deliver the Iranian response to a Saudi offer to de-escalate tensions. Because the thing is, you know, and, and again, you know, this is all based on various press reporting, so we don't know for sure, but the New York Times reports that Pompeo and Mike Pence, the vice president, were kind of the ones pushing the assassination in the administration. And they're, like, smart enough that they went on Twitter and said uh, Soleimani was going to launch an eminent threat against Americans. Uh, because that's the only way that, under our extremely fucked up national security laws, you even have the pretense of legality of doing this kind of assassination. Um, and then immediately Donald Trump tweets out that this was a retaliation. <laughs> so just like, there's just no pretense or pretending that any of this was legal at all whatsoever. Um, Did he at least get ratioed? <laughs> that's true. My own, per- my personal theory about this is like after Trump posted that American flag, mm. people were like, "Oh, he's trying to start World War III. And I don't think that's what happened at all. What I think happened is Pompeo and Pence. Uh, every time they want to do something like this, they just convince him that it will be his killing of Bin Laden, uh, and it didn't work with the uh, the last guy, Baghdadi. Mm-hmm. Uh, like he, everyone just laughed at him after that with the dog and so then they convinced him that this would be as bin laden while you know most likely trying to push war with iran right Uh, so according to the new york times and some other outlets the uh several u.s intelligence officials privy to the intelligence that suggested a supposed eminent threat said the evidence was quote-unquote razor thin to suggest any sort of eminent threat um and also the new york doesn't sound like uh It's 2003 again, baby. <laughs> We're back in Iraq. <laughs> Fucking starting wars based on razor-thin evidence. Um, but also the New York Times points out that uh, the killing of Qusem uh, Soleimani was a major general of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, the head of the Quds Force. This is the first uh, uh, senior military officer of a foreign country killed by the United States since we shot down Admiral Yamamoto in World War II. So, I mean, like, it's just so mind-blowing. At least they waited until that plane left the airport. (laughs) It's just so mind-blowing It's a military target, you know? (laughs) At least there's that. Because, like, by any fucking reasonable standard, it is a declaration or an act of war to assassinate the strongest military official in a sovereign government. You know, and when I say by any reasonable standard, I mean no national security lawyer will agree with me on that. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we, we've just gone so fucking far beyond the pale that you'll just see people on Twitter talking about, yeah, no, that uh, blank check, uh, the authorization for use of military force after 9-11, that just lets the president start a war with anybody, you know. Yeah. We don't even pretend there's any sort of legality or any sort of requirement of a constitutional declaration of war before you can just start assassinating major government officials in foreign nations. Like if it, 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 if Iran, uh, when Petraeus was in charge of Iraq, if Iran just hit him with a drone strike, that's mm-hmm. what this would have been. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the great thing is like— uh, I mean, you probably don't need to explain any of this to our listeners, I'm yes. sure. 
they know the magnitude of this. <laughs> it's worth going through because, you know, the Quds, the Quds Force is kind of combination intelligence agency and, uh, you know, irregular warfare arm. Uh, they were heavily involved in, you know, Iraq, Assyria, and all that. But assassinating the head of the Quds Force and then saying that is not an assassination is literally identical to if Iran assassinated the head of the CIA and then said, no, this is not an assassination. This is a terrorist, which, <laughs> inshallah... <laughs> You know, like, look, let's just keep a consistent legal definition going here. If if the head of the Quds Force is not a uh, official of the Iranian government, the head of the CIA is not an official of the U.S. government. I mean, I, I think, um, and I mean this as parody, <laughs> that the best way to diffuse this is to uh, give Iran a free drone strike on, I don't know... Um, uh, I say this as parody, uh, John Bolton, David Frum, parody, um, you know, just to even the scales. Right. Right. It's- oh, they, well, they've give, Iran has given, like, vague idea of what their revenge could possibly be in the future. Like, actually, they haven't given any idea. But um, it'll be, quote, at a time and place of their choosing. Which, which is a pretty cool statement. Yeah, it could be years from now. Yeah, what I think, what I see going down is like they'll just wait one year and then kidnap and possibly murder a NATO general or something like that, and then call it good. Yeah, I mean they're also in a bind because I'm sure they don't want a world war, but like such a brazen. uh, Yeah, they have to respond. Yeah, they have to respond somehow. So they Mm -hmm. have to optimize their response. Between satisfying the conservative Iranian nationalists and not getting invaded and or nuked by the U.S. Right. So they have to find the sweet spot there, solve that Lagrangian, <laughs> and find the answer. You also posted on the um, uh, on our Discord uh, the great Wikipedia page about the American-Iranian... Uh, or the It, it was a, a war game carried out in like 2000 to simulate war with Iran and uh <laughs> yeah it was called Millennium Challenge 2002 yeah and it was like a simulated war game yeah and it like they had to stop it because immediately America the the guy who was playing as Iran just used a bunch of low tech strategies to subvert uh, yeah, America's yeah. high tech uh strategies so, and like, won they, immediately. They had like it was like a combination of computer simulations mm-hmm. and also real forces like using fake weapons against each other. Right. And um they they didn't say it was Iran at the time, but military strategists looking back on it knew absolutely it was Iran. Yeah. And like they kept having to make the assumptions of the simulation easier and easier until the US quote won. Yeah, eventually they the the general who was in charge of um, uh, the quote opponent resigned mid simulation uh, on the second go round because in the second go round instead of letting him do what he wanted, which was uh, subverting American uh, signal interceptions by just having motorcycle messengers and subverting radar by just having small crafts uh, find American um, uh, aircraft carriers. Uh, they then 
he he won the first time doing that and so then they gave him a script of operations to follow that essentially guaranteed american victory and so he resigned <laughs> mid um, yeah and they like operation the, but that the, just makes the simulation more realistic <laughs> because if we'll give the iranians a script and they will follow it when the war breaks out this week but even in like the even in like the toughest scenario uh like or like the they one after like a couple of rounds of making it easier, uh, in a few of the iterations of the simulation, the Iranians still sunk like an entire aircraft carrier. <laughs> Which like side note, air, aircraft carriers it just reminds me of how much of a boondoggle they are in terms of like defending against sur- like surface to sea missiles and stuff. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, like leftover from the Soviets. Yeah. So like there are certain surface to sea systems that are like still extremely effective against aircraft carriers if they get into like uh within range of them like with that you would need to like support an invasion or something yeah the only advantage america really has militarily is long-range bombers right so like, yeah you'd have bombers. to be like far far out to sea uh servicing bombers to make the aircraft carrier worth it in like an invasion scenario but you can't have them anywhere to like have fighters like coming and going. Yeah. Yeah. But so we'll see what Iran actually does and uh you know maybe more things have happened by the time we actually release this podcast but as of the the recording Remain we just, indoors. <laughs> as of the recording we just got uh information that Iran has said they are going to totally withdraw from the nuclear agreement so uh it's very possible they will make a straight dash to a nuclear weapon and <laughs> nobody could fucking blame them. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Um and you know, uh, I guess there was some some fear mongering about uh, Hezbollah sleeper cells. There was some guy arrested in New Jersey for apparently being a Hezbollah sleeper cell. So they, I mean, they do have the ability to project force in a way that uh, he's very religious. He prays <laughs> like five times a day. <laughs> they do have a way to. Uh, they have an ability to project force that uh, people might not uh, be aware of, and, and this is a very dangerous time. Um, oh, I did just want to mention before we move on, uh, according to the Daily Beast, in the five days prior to launching this strike, Donald Trump dropped hints to guests at Mar-a-Lago about what was coming. <laughs> so not only did they not inform the U.S. Congress, they didn't inform the Iraqi government, but just fucking uh, rich dipshits at his resort property were getting hints that he was about to start a war with Iran. Um, yeah. I bet Ghislaine and Maxwell knew about this before we did. <laughs> so just from Daily Beast, according to three people who had been at the president's Palm Beach Club over the past several days, Trump began telling friends and allies hanging out at his uh, vacation getaway that he was working on a, quote, big response to the Iranian regime that would they would be hearing or reading about, quote, very soon. His comments went beyond the New Year's Eve tweet. He sent warning of a big price Iran would pay. Uh, two of the sources tell Daily Beast that the president specifically mentioned that he'd been in close contact with his top national security and military advisors gaming out options for an aggressive action that could quickly materialize. He kept saying, quote, you'll see, one of the sources recalls, <laughs> describing, a, see. <laughs> descri- <laughs> describing a conversation with Trump in the days before uh, the strike. So, you know, I mean, 
And then the New York Times also reported that basically the generals were uh, giving him options of responses to, you know, this, uh, whatever, the protest, the siege at the embassy, because he was like very infuriated that he didn't want a Benghazi. And he tweeted about this will be the anti Benghazi. So he didn't want to look weak. And then generals gave him some options. It it, it won't be a Benghazi because it's not an obscure CIA front running guns to ISIS. (laughs) The, the generals gave him some options, and according to the New York Times, uh, they got sources that said the generals presented the option of killing Suleimani as a way of seeing more extreme and getting him to pick one yeah, of the, the less extreme options. One. Yeah, they presented it as like a joke option. Right. <laughs> but like to make the middle one seem like... To point him in the direction oh, of so something it's like, reasonable. It's like, it's like the uh, the big TV that gets you to buy the mid-sized TV. Exactly. And Trump always buys the big TV. <laughs> so he's like the X Factor that yeah. shows what no one thought was tenable. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, apparently, according to the New York Times, according to the New York Times account of how this all went down, you know, he originally picked, like, one of the bombs, some militia convoy options, and then with the embassy strike being on TV, he got really enraged and went immediately to the kill Suleimani option. Uh, so, I mean, it is just something where it's horrifying to think about these are how these decisions are made. Uh, you pitch to your boss or whoever, like, hey, so these are the three options, and I want you to go with this one, so I'm going to have the really extreme one over here to get you to not go with that. But yeah, then as you're, soon as... you're required to present three. Yeah. So, but well, you mean, only the... want them to pick one. So. Yeah. Um, but also, like, the um, Suleimani, I mean, apparently, I, I think he also wasn't. I'm sure he was aware that something crazy option like this was out there, but he took a calculated risk by doing his conducting his business semi publicly at an airport. He's like, I mean, there no one's going to just fucking drop a bomb on me here. Yeah, yeah, I'm a public official in a country that's not at war with anyone. So, right. I mean, he was also assuming that there'd be norm enforcement to some degree with this, mm-hmm. but no, there's not not with Trump. Yeah, and uh, Trump has tweeted that he is uh, warning Iran not to retaliate at all, and he has promised to strike, quote, 52 sites across Iran, representing the number of American hostages taken by Iran in 1979, uh, all of whom were released, yeah, by all the of way. Them survived, and <laughs> were so sad that they had to get kept in a room. <laughs> they were kept in a room. Yeah. They got to be portrayed by Ben Affleck, or yeah. <laughs> Uh, but, and they uh, were only imprisoned because their government had implemented the most brutal regime in the country's history yeah. that tortured one in, what was it, uh, family, one in four family people in Iran knew someone or were directly connected to someone who had been tortured by the Shah regime mm-hmm. that the embassy at that time was helping prop up. Mm-hmm. Just, yeah, mass torture, mass executions of any dissidents, the overthrowing of a democratic government that was attempting to nationalize natural resources that belonged to it. Uh, and they got kept in a room. <laughs> Soleimani was being floated as a presidential candidate, just right. to give you an idea of his popularity. Right. He was clearly, except for the Supreme Leader, the second most powerful person in Iran. And there was even speculation that this might actually benefit some of the some of the 
competitors for power within Iran. They kept our ambassador in a room. <laughs> uh, but Trump uh, said that uh, at a very the, he will hit these fifty two sites across Iran at a very high level and, and important to Iran and the Iranian culture and those targets in Iran itself will uh, all caps be hit very fast and very hard. So, I mean, you know, we're, we're just in a really an ungodly position here yeah. where you have to expect Iran will do something. And then, you know, if Trump just starts bombing Iran, we're functional. We're at war with uh, the major regional power in the Middle East for no goddamn reason. Remember in the mid 2000s when everything was super jingoistic and people were like in Iran, they call us the great Satan. <laughs> And I was like, oh, yeah, we're the great Satan. <laughs> we're really leaning into the great Satan right now. Are we the great Satan? Are, are we Are we? Are we the baddies? <laughs> There's also a video on Twitter of Suleimani's funeral procession, which people are calling the largest funeral procession in history. I mean, like, I don't know if it actually is, but you look at these videos, just wave after wave of people all out in the yeah, streets. Just uh, blocks and blocks packed with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it is just something where it totally undermines any domestic opposition to the Iranian government, because there have been protests against uh, the Iranian government, which have been violently suppressed. But, of course, if you have, if you murder a very popular official within a government, you are thumbing your nose at the people there, the sovereignty, everything. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and... Um yeah, speaking of uh, violent repression against protests, uh, remember the Dakota Access Pipeline? <laughs> um, but I guess we should kind of start with the subject today and why we're talking about this rather obscure American billionaire named Thomas Kaplan, because I learned about this organization called United Against a Nuclear Iran. And the story of United Against a Nuclear Iran is, is very fascinating. And... Uh, I guess maybe we could even just have Thomas Kaplan start by explaining a little bit about it. Because, again, so this is an American billionaire, Thomas Kaplan. He receives an award from the uh, French embassy in 2014, and he gives a short speech where he mentions an organization called United Against a Nuclear Iran and the work that they have done. A friend's comment that one day our kids might ask us what our generation did when we knew what the Iranians' intentions were prompted me to become part of something bigger. It's hard to know what the outcome will be, but I do know that as much as United Against Nuclear Iran may not have had Tomahawk missiles and aircraft carriers at its disposal, we've done more to bring Iran to heel than any other private sector initiative and most public ones. Right. So you heard him there say United Against a Nuclear Iran has done more than any other private sector initiative and most public ones, you might think he's exaggerating. He is not. By the way, if you're trying to place that accent, it's born in New York, raised in Florida. <laughs> uh, so United Against... In insanely rich. Yes. <laughs> right. And, and so we'll go through briefly how he actually made his money, but I did just want to start with just a little bit of comment on United Against a Nuclear Iran, just for people who do not know, because it is a fascinating story. United Against a Nuclear Iran is a... Um, a nonprofit organization that has, you know, one of the former heads of the Mossad advising it. John Bolton helped uh, co-found it. Uh, a former uh, George W. Bush alternate ambassador to the United Nations is the CEO, a guy named Mike Wallace. Um, 
So it has all these hawks on the board and all these connections, the U.S. intelligence and uh, the Mossad. And interestingly enough, what, what it kind of does is it names and shames corporations that do business with Iran, get, tries to get them to divest and such. And British Petroleum? Yes. <laughs> oh, oh no, they're not there anymore. <laughs> Uh, but so a Greek, uh, and we'll talk about this in a little more detail later, but a Greek shipping magnate actually sued them for, uh, you know, calling him out. He said that they had damaged his business and cost him millions of dollars. So he sued them in federal court, uh, and he just wanted to see their donor list and he wanted to see their methodology for how they identify companies that do business with Iran. And for the first time in United States history, the U.S. Department of Justice intervened in a case that it or any of its contractors were not a party in and uh, invoked state secrecy to say that the United Against a Nuclear Iran does not have to turn over any of this information about its donors or its methodology or anything because it is a U.S. state secret. And in 2015, a judge agreed and threw out the lawsuit. Not a front company. Yes. So that is exactly it, where there's, you know, a write-up in the New York Times that says it is actually under, I don't know if it's under CIA charter or actual federal law, it is illegal for the CIA to attempt to influence public opinion through front companies and nonprofits. So it is not that hard to imagine as to why the U.S. Department of Justice might be intervening to say that it might be bad for us if the donor list and other methodologies and basic documents of this organization are turned over, because it might reveal that the CIA and or the Mossad have been trying to influence the U.S. public into going to war with Iran. And which administration was this? Uh, The Obama administration. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like what's the really mind-blowing thing about it is united against a nuclear Iran, you would assume— The most transparent president in history— well, uh, you know, no he, scandals. Yes, no, no scandals. scandals. Right. Well, he did wear a tan suit once. He did also uh, have more Espionage Act prosecutions of journalists and whistleblowers than any president up until that point. I believe every president combined up until that point. And the New York Times points out that uh, they have previously, the Obama administration had at the time of this, prosecuted people under the Espionage Act for having access to sensitive information just having the actual information so if they are filing in federal court to say that no you can't turn over these documents you can't get these documents because it is sensitive federal information well why aren't they prosecuting united against a nuclear iran (laughs) under the espionage act the exact same way they do these journalists and whistleblowers uh so the only thing he did wrong was he wore that tan suit But it is something where I guess it is disturbing, and we'll go through all the various different pieces of evidence that we have, but having done a few hours of research, I am almost 100% convinced that United Against a Nuclear Iran is either a Mossad or a CIA front, or both, and that Thomas Kaplan, uh, one of the two major billionaire funders of United Against a Nuclear Iran, the other is, of course, Sheldon Adelson, who we've done an episode about, which, minor irony, uh, United Against a Nuclear Iran funder who uh, wants to nuke Iran and has said publicly that uh, we should detonate a nuclear weapon in the, de- in the desert of Iran in order to threaten them. But uh, we'll focus today on Thomas Kaplan, just because we've already covered uh, Sheldon Adelson on a previous episode. Um, but but it is something where I am absolutely convinced that this is an intelligence front and that the billionaire, Robert or Thomas Kaplan, is probably linked to intelligence either of the Israeli or uh, United States variety. And uh, we'll get to all that, but I guess we can just mm. kind of start from the beginning. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still uh, 
I've still got recoil from the Sheldon Adelson let's set off a nuke in the desert <laughs> thing. It's understandable. Yeah. Because that's fucking insane. Yeah. yeah. And from, yeah, and United Against a Nuke. Okay. Sheldon Adelson presents Trump with three options. <laughs> like, Two of them are nukes. <laughs> right. The least extreme is assassinate Suleimani. One of them is change my diaper. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, our boy Thomas Kaplan, he... Uh, uh, he has a, a Wikipedia page that was definitely not written by his employees, but here's a sentence from his Wikipedia page. In his youth, he developed a passion for wildlife conservation and for Rembrandt, which decades later inspired him, respectively, to found the field conservation group Panthera and to establish the Leiden Collection, the world's largest private grouping of works from the Dutch Golden Age. Mm. So, um, yeah... I had to go to other places for his biography, but he was born September 14th, 1962 in New York, raised in Florida, and then he got would, a just bachelor's... To, yeah, sorry to interrupt you, but just to say, he, it, it, I'm told that he has the largest collection of uh, Dutch masters in the entire world, and I want to say, whatever our disagreements, I do respect his commitment to a good, solid rolling paper. <laughs> He's been there for me, and as much as I hate to support a billionaire when I roll up a spliff, you know, it's the mo- the best consistency is the Dutch Masters. You're trying to act cool, but you haven't smoked pot in, like, <laughs> My wife doesn't let years. me. Yeah. Your wife, you don't smoke pot because your wife won't let you. That's, that's part of being a badass. <laughs> I'm not whipped. Do not play any sound effects over this. Uh, but sorry, please See, go on. He, uh, um... Uh, he got his uh, bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in history at Oxford, and I guess that's how you get his weird accent. Uh, his <laughs> dissertation that we... It, you can't get the text of it, and you can barely find the uh, reference to it. It was on the uh, Malayan counterinsurgency and the way that commodities influence strategic planning. And apparently while earning his PhD in history... He was working as an analyst covering Israeli companies that are publicly traded in the U.S., which, you know, is a normal side job when you're getting a Ph.D. in history is to be an analyst. Like being a waiter. Yeah, it's like being a waiter, you know, or some people, they'll um, they'll T.A., they'll, uh, you know, they'll lecture the 100 level classes. He uh, worked as an analyst covering Israeli companies publicly traded in the U.S. from Oxford. So... We were trying to figure out before we recorded the episode where he got his almost guaranteed Mossad connections. Yeah. And so this seems like one potential point. Uh, another one is that right after he graduated, he got a job through... Well, first he met his wife, Daphne Reconati, and she introduced him to this guy, A.V. Timokin, who mm. is an Israeli investor. Yeah, and so he's at Oxford working on his dissertation in 1988, and according to the story he tells, he flies on a six-day trip to Israel and meets his wife there, though apparently him and his wife also went to the same boarding school in Switzerland. So They didn't know each other then. Yeah, they didn't know each other, but they went to the same elite boarding school in Switzerland, and then they met in Israel and got married. Oh, so he's got Switzerland in that accent, too. Yeah, that's that's part of it. Yeah, like, the only... 
it's very clear that they've like shrunk all of the official biography information, <laughs> which again makes me more suspicious that he is connected to intelligence. But I did find this small profile from Worth.com about the King of the Cats. It's mostly a puff piece about his conservation efforts for big cats, which we'll uh, talk about a little bit. But according to them, he was uh, born in 1962 in New York City. Uh, he was the son of a Jewish-American businessman, Jason, who was apparently an entrepreneur who was successful enough that he was able to retire when he was young. Uh, and, you know, his mother was a homemaker named Lillian, and he had kind of a privileged upbringing. Uh, the family moved to Florida when he was eight years old, though before that, apparently he tells the story that his mom would take him to MoMA and he would demand to see the Rembrandts. And that's where he got his taste for the Dutch masters. But they moved to Florida when he's eight and then he goes no to Rembrandts and MoMA. <laughs> well, maybe they had some. I, I don't quite know. Oh, they might have some now, actually. Mm -hmm. Not in the MoMA. Maybe in the um, in the Met, but the MoMA's modern art. It's like someone's diarrhea smeared on a canvas that's supposed to represent longing. <laughs> so maybe he's just into Rembrandts, because if he was into modern art, the CIA connection would be too obvious. <laughs> um, but I did just like, there's this one short story from this that I found very weird. So he's, of course, he's in Fl he moves to Florida when he's eight. He's going to boarding school in Switzerland. But he tells the story of how he got into big cats. Um, he says that uh, for his 11th birthday, his mother took him to the Amazon rainforest to see jaguars in the wild. Uh, and he gives this quote, I went down to Colombia to this basically CIA outpost called Leticia. It was run by a smuggler called Captain Mike. Um, and then he saw some <laughs> massive anacondas and uh, he brought some turtles and snakes home with him from the Amazon. So it's just kind of weird where it's like his family can take him down to what he describes as a CIA <laughs> outpost in fucking Colombia when he's 11 years old. And, and you know, we'll, we'll kind of go through the rest of these connections in a minute here. Oh, I, I mean, maybe that's if I, I if it's a, a CIA outpost isn't something that's going to be public knowledge. It's right. not like, oh, let's go to Colombia and check out the CIA outpost. You know, that's it, 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 that it seems to almost directly imply that his family had CIA connections. Right. Um, and maybe that's how he got into intelligence. Um, yeah, the only uh, the only other profile of him is, uh, is a profile from Bloomberg that is a dead link on Wikipedia. So I had to pull it up on the web archive. And what's interesting is that uh there is a copy, or at least there was, in the last two days, this article has been jumping around. Um, it First, I could only find it on the web archive, and then I found it on NBC. And then just uh, an hour ago, I tried to pull it up on NBC again, and it's a dead link now. <laughs> but the one that was on NBC seems to have been a heavily edited version of the Bloomberg Business Week profile. Definitely no intelligence connections here, folks. <laughs> So we'll go into kind of the main non-Iranian stuff real quick about him. And the, I guess the best way to introduce it is how the Bloomberg article starts, which is with a quote from him, which is, I'm not a gold bug. And then the rest of the article is about how he's a <laughs> And gold I bug. do not eat dust, Mr. Mullen. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, after, I guess, uh, uh, joining up with A.B. Timonkin, after he wrote his dissertation, 
And then apparently his big breakthrough was predicting that Saddam Hussein would invade Kuwait. And I guess that helped with their investments because everyone else, the conventional wisdom was that uh, one Arab country would not attack another. Mm. And so him being right about that uh, is his cover story we've realized for how he or we we suspect for how he became a billionaire. Right. Yeah, it's uh, just one other quote from that Worth.com profile. Basically, like we said, he's doing, uh, he does his undergraduate, his master's, and then he's working on his PhD dissertation at Oxford in 1988. Uh, you know, he flies to Israel, meets his wife. And then according to this Worth.com profile, uh, on a trip back uh, from Israel to Oxford in 89, quote, he had an epiphany, which was that Saddam Hussein was going to invade Kuwait. And then I'll just quote from this here. By this time, 1989, Kaplan, perhaps through his wife, perhaps through others, had connections in the Saudi and Israeli intelligence communities. They both reported that neither the Mossad nor the Saudi intelligence believed an Iraqi invasion of Kuwait was possible, Kaplan recalls. They were senior people and very well connected. They came back with, you're a nice jewish boy but you're delusional <laughs> and so the official story is that um yeah uh, avi uh Tiomkin, uh his business partner is an israeli businessman who kind of puts him in business initially uh he tells avi that saddam's going to invade kuwait here's how you invest to make money off this and this is how he makes his first big score and again maybe it went down like this but it, this could also totally just be a cover story he, for, he, for an, a jeffrey epstein type figure fake billionaire he also describes uh, av tiomkin um he he says that they got along immediately and says his views his convictions were impressive which uh that doesn't sound like something you would say about an investor <laughs> that his convictions are impressive uh, that's something you say about a spy right uh, so in 1993, he stops, I guess, predicting Saddam Hussein and goes into natural resource investing. Mm -hmm. And he, on paper, appears to be, well, at first he appears to be somewhat uh, successful at it. Uh, he, in Bolivia, he relocates 200 people and a cemetery in uh, San Cristobal mm -hmm. um, with a company, Apex. Apex. Mm -hmm. um, but then he Apex. resigned. Apex? No. No, no, no. It's Apex. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the company Apex. Apex. Were... It's confusing because they're both run by the Mossad. <laughs> <laughs> he, he resigned from the company in 2004 and then it went bankrupt four years later. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that he, he keeps on talking about how gold is, he's not a gold bug, but that gold is an important commodity because it will always, it will keep going up in value because it's scarce which is exactly what a gold bug would say like <laughs> <laughs> well you just, like he you know he puts a spin on it he puts a spin so, on like, it most yeah. gold bugs will let you know that in times of political strife geopolitical conflict you want to get out of stocks and go to gold yeah because like you know stocks can companies can issue as much stock as they want and then they can buy it back and supply goes all over the place Right. And this to the gold bug anyway says that gold uh its production is more stable and also declining because it's harder to find new sources of gold. And that hasn't stopped him from trying. We'll get to that in a second. Yeah, so like he on his innovation with his gold investment thesis, I guess, is he wants to bring in the long-term investors into gold with this supply-oriented argument. Mm. Yeah, and 
Also early in his career, we were talking about this. He was investing with Soros around the same time that, or this was in the the mid 2000s, around the same time that Glenn Beck uh, was talking about how Soros was a puppet master. (laughs) And at the same time, if you've ever seen Fox News, uh, you know, at a gym, uh, you probably see on the Fox News TV during one of their many commercial breaks an advertisement scamming old people out of their gold, either offering to sell it to them at a severe markup or buy it from them at a severe markdown. Right. Like uh, Glenn Beck, during the height of his you know Obama-era popularity, when he warned hyperinflation was coming, would do these un- marked ad reads just in the middle of his radio show or his fox news program where he would say the hyperinflation is coming you have to buy gold now so you know of course the great and many of these it's been revealed that he was being paid to do some of these (laughs) but the great irony is you know he's talking about george soros being the puppet master well george soros is the person according to all public accounts who puts thomas kaplan in business thomas kaplan around 2008 or 2009 2010 becomes a huge gold bug so of course the irony is glenn beck is calling out george soros well at the same time enriching him by selling gold because george soros is of course in that position too yes and gold of course it's only it has a very limited inherent value (laughs) and they're uh the its value value is that as an asset class it's volatile yeah yeah the, the pitch is that it's not volatile but then its value is based on scarcity which is an incredibly like in itself a fairly volatile like there's the it, it's not based on inherent value <laughs> and it should be just noted you know with uh thomas kaplan just a, a couple things like he made his fortune in commodities which we'll we'll go through but uh first of all people have pointed out most people who make their money in commodities whether it's oil or uh, silver uh most people who do that get their degrees in you know advanced mathematics physics it's just very rare for a history phd to to get into this field and again it is kind of suspicious that as we mentioned while he's at oxford he gets a job as an analyst we're looking at what you said it was israeli stocks yeah israeli uh, stocks being traded in the united states yeah like there's so many oxford phds from florida and new york city (laughs) doing that extremely specific job so it is kind of a question as to uh, I'm convinced that he has intelligence questions, my uh, connections. My only question is when they developed. Um, but you know, there's there's that element of it, and then there's just the also f- the other fact that commodities prices spike during war and instability. And he's filed, you know, his companies have filed SEC, uh, what are they called, prospectus documents, saying essentially that you know we are heavily invested in silver. We predict regional instability. I think one of his uh, prospectuses even said uh, uh, the possibility of a nuclear Iran offers a serious. Um, uh, uh, price spike for silver i believe it was silver mm-hmm. but the point here is like we don't and i think his his uh bolivian mine oh wait he ha- he has um uh silver mines in idaho actually mm. i'll get to that yep. in a minute too yep. yeah but i guess the point here is we can't get inside this guy's head uh as to how much of it is like he's a true believer in the zionist project how much of it he thinks you know iran is going to carry out the second holocaust but what is undeniable is that his business investments would hugely benefit from a war with Iran, as would many commodities, um, m- many people who are long in commodities. We've already seen the oil spike with uh, all this regional tension. It's it's also interesting how he's a Rembrandt collector because, you know, we've talked about art collectors, uh, billionaire art collectors uh, previously on this podcast several times. And what's especially interesting about him being 
a Rembrandt collector. First of all, um, I'm glad that the School of Athens is affixed to a wall in the Vatican so that he can't get his hands on it. Um, but it, it's it's also it, it, it works very similarly to gold, where its value is in its scarcity. It doesn't have an inherent value. It doesn't have a use value, and it's it, it's largely he he talks about how magnanimous he is by loaning it out to museums but that's also just a strategy to uh create more to increase the value of his investments uh because they're placed in uh by having them placed in a museum they mm-hmm. are of course seen as more valuable hmm. yeah so i mean he he goes out of his way to say well my i i've lent out higher percentage of my art portfolio to public institutions than you know most people most other wealthy millionaires and billionaires who have an art portfolio as large as mine mm-hmm. i'm like to me like all i hear when i hear that is just like okay so you get rental income from your art gallery yeah great congratulations and on top of that like the people like a rembrandt is very easy to loan out to a gallery because galleries want stuff like that because they're you know, in a more realistic sense, uh, priceless culturally, the people who tend to sit on their art collections generally have shitty modern art that museums already have too much of. It's like, you know, here's, uh, here's, I put a pint of my blood into a fire extinguisher (laughs) and sprayed it on clothes that I wore to summer camp. And then it goes for a million at Sotheby's and someone keeps it in a closet because it might, you know, gain value. But Mm -hmm. yeah. And part of and under underlying a lot of his purchases is the debt that he took on in order to buy a lot of the art. Mm -hmm. So he needs to part of this is he needs to rental income from lending it out to these museums in order to pay off the loans. Mm -hmm. And like he wants them to appreciate and he wants to market them. Mm-hmm. And you need like part of part of marketing art and generating demand for it is having it be seen by the public. Yeah. And as well as your rich friends privately when they come over to your house and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there needs to be like a combination of those two things happening and also receiving some income in the middle in order for it to really work as like a a uh, a type of asset management technique, I guess. It's really sickening that this great world historical art is being used in this way. Yeah. As just like one more technique to manage their assets. Mm-hmm. And another thing we've talked about is how good art is, you know, multi-million dollar art sales are for laundering money or for getting, you know, dark money, uh, which of course a member of an intelligence agency would not need access to for any reason. <laughs> and this should not be read too much into at all. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So going back to his mining operations, um, well, or I guess his other uh, public face and how that ties into his mining operations. He plays himself up as a major conservationist. Yeah. And he has a support the Panthers charity, I guess. <laughs> Panthera. Panthera, which... Which apparently David Petraeus, former CIA director, is a board member of. And uh, there's a bunch of connections that I can go through in a second where uh, David Petraeus came to, I believe, a 2018 event for United Against a Nuclear Iran. Uh, Thomas Kaplan describes him as a friend. David Petraeus and Thomas Kaplan together launched an intelligence agency's fellowship at Harvard Kennedy School uh, in 2016, where intelligence agencies in the United States 
uh, France and Israel can nominate uh, potential candidates to get a scholarship to go to uh, the Harvard Kennedy uh, School, uh, the Kennedy School of Government, to study to be better intelligence agencies. Again, the Kennedy School of the Americas. <laughs> yeah, don't read too much into any of this. So he he obviously gets questions, uh, which are uh, how how do you reconcile being a conservationist and being someone who is makes his money from mining? And he says, well, I have the uh, most ecologically friendly mines. And so the looking into his mines, it turns out that they're mostly open pit mines, which is the most environmentally destructive kind of mining. Uh, a report from MIT said open pit mining uh, where material is excavated from an open pit is one of the most common forms of mining for strategic minerals. This type of mining is particularly damaging to the environment because strategic minerals are often available in small concentrations, which increases the amount of ore needed to be mined. Uh, also from this article from uh, Iranian scientists, ironically, uh, has a pretty good overview of the problems of open pit mining. Maybe he just wants to destroy Iran to get these people to shut up. <laughs> uh, it says the effects of open pit mining. That's mineral- what happened with those uh, Iranian scientists that Israel assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> they were running off in their mouths on open pit mining, yeah. presenting a problem for our business. He's like faxing targets to <laughs> to Trump. And it's just these people's houses, uh, these scientists' houses. Um, the article states, The effects of open pit mining and mineral processing plants on the environment include land degradation, noise, dust, poisonous gases, pollution of water, etc. If there is no impermeable layer uh, below the deposit, the infiltration of meteoric precipitation through deposit can transfer pollutants via groundwater flow. Mm. The extraction process itself or could itself modify the water flow and accelerate this transfer. Uh, And then it also says the above activities may change the topography and vegetation as well. Water pollution is another aspect of mine operations, greatly impacting the environment. If a springhead is situated in the mine area, the pollutants, uh, the pollution endangers springs, uh, which exist in the area. Similarly, the contaminated water in the mining operation has vital impacts on the rivers, agriculture, fresh drinking waters, and ecosystems. Uh, because of abundance of heavy minerals, suspended solid particles, and decreasing levels of pH. Uh, decreasing water level in the mines due to drainage not only causes undesirable changes in the nearby lakes, but it can also be a threat to aquatics. Uh yeah, and, and we should put this in specifics because, you know, we talked about Bolivia. So he makes his first big score in Bolivia. Um, they, uh, it, the, His company, Apex Silver Mines LTD, which just happens to be incorporated in the Cayman Islands, so <laughs> not a tax haven. Um, but so in uh, 1993, they found this thing. According to a Forbes profile in 2000, they found this in 1993. Uh, he says, uh, Thomas Kaplan says in an interview that he started it with 10000 of his own money, uh, you take his word for it or don't, it doesn't really matter. But he uh, he convinces George Soros to give him $10 million uh, because he says, you know, silver is going to spike. So they go around looking for different silver properties. And according to this Forbes profile, uh, they uh, Kaplan hires a geologist named Larry Buchanan uh, to go uh, look for uh, silver properties. And then one evening in January 1995, while heating coffee over a campfire in the Andes Mountains, uh, 350 miles south of La Paz, uh, Buchanan noticed a golden glow in the distance. 
The setting sun was glancing off the hills about a mile away with a color and intensity suggested uh, big outcroppings of silver-bearing rocks. The next day, after a hike in the area, Buchanan telephoned Kaplan, buy up the land he advised. Kaplan eventually did, suspending $10 million on options to acquire the properties. So in 1995, uh, he gets this geologist to go out to Bolivia and spend $10 million of George Soros' money to buy up uh, this silver uh, mine. And again, it just should be noted, something we've talked about and many of our listeners might be aware, is that every government in Bolivia uh, up to... Evo Morales and proceeding after Evo Morales was extremely corrupt. So it shouldn't surprise you that the only thing I could find about this was that, uh, according to uh, uh, Reuters, in 2004, or no, sorry, in 2009, uh, Apex Silver Mining was served with what's called a Wells Notice uh, by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a notice that they are going to uh, recommend bringing an enforcement action against that company. And again, the only details are about this is that the SEC says that in 2006, the SEC began an investigation into the potential payments to government officials made by certain senior employees of one of the company's South American subsidiaries in 2003 and 2004 uh, in connection with an early-stage exploration project. So why I'm bringing that up is... There is an SEC allegation unproven that they were engaged in bribery in uh, South America, very possibly (laughs) Bolivia, in order to get these mining properties. Um, And they get they end up getting with this $10 million, um, a mining site that was that is that they would sell in 2010, but I believe is today the um, sixth largest zinc mine in the world, the third largest silver mine in the world. Um, And of course, as Andy just mentioned, all of the open air mining is environmentally devastating. There was a um, he he tried to make lightning strike twice um, with this uh, strategy in Romania, mm. and um, turned out it kind of backfired. He uh, there he heavily invested. He has um, a conglomerate called uh, Elect- Electrum Group, mm. and they heavily invested in a company called Gabriel Resources, which is a mining company that has never operated a mine. Uh, but they tried to start a mine in Boli- or not in Bolivia in Romania, and they made the deal. It looks like originally in a somewhat shady um, circumstance. Uh, not too long after the fall of uh, the communist regime, there it, it, it it's a uh, an echo of our IKEA episode. If you've listened to that, where essentially. Romania has very corrupt politicians, and um, they're very easy to bribe, and they got the uh, permits to build a mine in Romania. And then the people of Romania, to their credit, uh, seem to have gotten a less corrupt government in place. Uh, They also uh, started having massive protests uh, around 2010 when they were or before 2010, when they were uh, starting to actually plan out the mine, and they successfully blocked Gabriel Resources uh, from ever building a mine. And so then Gabriel Resources, again, a company that's never had a mine, tried and is still trying to sue the government of Romania for $4.4 billion in, quote, lost revenue because they wouldn't let them build an economically devastating mine um, that would have uh, dis- it would have stripped four mountains, Jesus uh, and again, it was another open pit mine, and so it would have had all the effects that 
uh, I read off earlier. Um, and <laughs> you don't know how much time we've hypothetically put into this this non-existent mind. Yeah, four point <laughs> four billion dollars worth of thought went into this thing. <laughs> $4.4 billion worth of lies to investors went into this mine. Uh, and so, they, I mean, that's that's clearly a number that just came off of a PowerPoint, you know, while pitching people on this thing. Um, fortunately, the they they tried to sue them. This, this lawsuit, uh, they tried to carry it out through the World Bank. And then there was a court decision that said that um, this company couldn't, uh, do that or that um, a certain kind of arbitration I, I don't it, it's it's confusing but apparently they got struck uh, a pretty devastating blow a couple of years ago um, that has made it a lot harder for them to actually successfully sue the government of Romania for blocking this mine right uh, but one of uh, one of the quotes from this guy also it would have destroyed um, a Roman archaeological site because it, this was actually a mining, uh, this was actually a mine since Roman times, mm. um, which now makes it an archaeological site. And the, that archaeological site would have been buried under a pool of cyanide uh, if the <laughs> mine were created. And the the quote that he... But that is appropriate for Roman times, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the quote given uh, by... Uh, Thomas Kaplan is uh, those who say a scarred landscape should be preserved at the expense of a truly exciting economic future for a poor community are being unjust. This is telling the local people to bootstrap their way to progress Ugh. when they don't have the means to pro- procure boots. And uh, as the local people, uh, they have been fiercely protesting the construction of this mine uh, that he's trying to force on them um, for about a decade now. Well, I mean, and that's the great irony, like that uh, Bloomberg article Andy's quoting from is the only place I found where he actually reckons with this, where every single profile, or almost every profile you find of Thomas Kaplan opens with his philanthropy. It's like, you know, this this great billionaire is is saving the big cats. He's saving the leopards and the jaguars. And, you know, I even found, I'm paraphrasing a quote to the effect of like, thank God this man made this money because he's done so much to save the big cats. And if he hadn't made this money, the all these big cats would be extinct now. And of course, the irony here, and this is the only profile I've seen where he actually attempts to grapple with this, is he made about 2.5 billion dollars in hydrocarbons so the deforestation alone that he has caused is multiples higher than any fucking philanthropy that he's done uh for the big cats and then of course here he also has on his wikipedia page very prominently a bunch of uh, cultural heritage site conservation philanthropies going and yet he's totally willing to just dump cyanide all over roman cultural heritage sites because he doesn't give a shit well he doesn't give a shit about the Romans. He studied modern history in <laughs> Oxford, which begins when they left Britain. Well, he actually he has um, a very interesting quote about this uh, that I've got queued up here. I love gold. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and I think he says something in that art in that uh, Bloomberg article to the effect of like, I tell my people, uh, if it's a choice between business and conservation, conservation always wins out. But of course, he's just ignoring local Romanian environmental activists. I love gold. But um, I guess we should just mention. According to I'm surprised we didn't. It took us two years to get Austin Powers drops. <laughs> 
We should just mention, according to Forbes, as of 2017, they put uh, Thomas Kaplan's net worth at about $1 billion, though I saw other sources that say that his gold investments alone are worth $2 billion, and it should be noted, from 2010 to the present, he's been a major gold advocate. His found- co- yeah, his companies, collectively, right. own $2 billion in gold. Gold assets. Okay, so yeah, so his his actual net worth probably in the range of about one billion or just over. But you can assume that if there's a gold spike, which there very much might be, if there's regional tension or a war with Iran, his net worth will go up. Um, but I, I just wanted to mention the hydrocarbon here very briefly. Um, so he makes his first uh, fortune on the San Cristobal mine in Bolivia, we mentioned. Uh, he sells it in 2010. Uh, then he takes that money and... Um, Where he uh, dug up copper and silver shortly after digging up people. They relocated a cemetery. Yeah, it was a little weird. I, I couldn't find a source for this, but on the Wikipedia, it says that uh, workers there would be doing 12-hour days, seven days a week, the actual people doing the mining. So, yeah, two weeks on, one week off. Right, so you can only imagine the actual labor conditions, which, again, uh, every Bolivian government before Evo Morales just wouldn't give a shit about it all as long as you paid off the right people. Yeah, I'd, uh, my summer job before college was doing 12-hour shifts in a bottle factory, and... <laughs> It destroys you. It was it was three days on, four days off, or four days on, three days off. But it was it, it alternated every week. But it was there's like awful. I'm not gonna quote from it, but maybe we'll link it. There's a New York Times uh, puff piece with him where it's what's your Sunday routine? So he writes out his Sunday routine <laughs> and he describes like Sunday is the day my wife sleeps in, so I make scrambled eggs for my kids, and then my wife and I go to a local uh, brunch place and we get what's called the pancake orgy it's a bunch of pancakes with like chocolate syrup and shit and it's just like the most like banality of evil shit you're ever gonna read in your life uh but you know you just imagine like the devastation that his mining operations have brought to all sorts of uh people suffering under the aegis of a corrupt government that just doesn't give a shit about them yeah one of his uh so his mine i'm just gonna mention this really quickly he has a mine in uh idaho that i mentioned uh the sunshine mine uh he got it out of bankruptcy in 2010 and i think part of the reason it uh went into bankruptcy is that in uh, 1972 it had a fire that killed 91 miners was pretty much the worst uh it looks like the worst mining incident in american history uh if you if you look it up on google it has one review which is a one star review <laughs> there's reviews for mines yeah yeah the sunshine mine has one star it says one of the worst <laughs> mining disasters in united states history 91 miners died when there was a fire in 1972 may they rest in peace let us never forget you know what grizzly country uh the person who submitted that uh, thank you for your contribution <laughs> And it'd then, be, of course, it'd in, be nice if there was like a two star review that was like 79 miners died. But, you know, the servers were nice. So I'm giving them <laughs> two stars for having nice employees. And it looks like it's still in operation. But in 2012, there was another fire and uh, no one no one died. But they did lay off 24 miners while they were extinguishing it. What I wanted to mention about that is, according to a different uh, 2010 Forbes profile, I found uh, when they bought up this um, uh, what's it called? the Sunshine Mine in Idaho, when they bought this up, he uh, bought it up through 
he had the team that bought it up, the Sunshine Transition Team, headed by Mark Wallace, president of his Tigris Financial Group. Uh, he has a bunch of different companies, but Tigris Financial Group was was running it. And the, the point is, Mark Wallace is also the CEO of United Against a Nuclear Iran. So his financial operations are also being run by the guy who's running this probably Mossad CIA operation front. Uh, both of whom, it was clear, stand to make money if the commodities prices spike. Uh, so, and you know, we, we if we have time, we'll go through. But there's just a bunch of weird connections between his actual financial companies and United Against a Nuclear Iran, where I there's mean, people working for both. Let's do that now. Okay. Well, uh, one other thing I want to mention before we get there is just in 2003. Uh, so he makes his first killing on this uh, uh, San Cristobal mine and uh, silver mine in Bolivia. Then in 2003. He gets his nephew, his uh, sister's son, uh, Guama Aguiar, who was apparently um, born in Brazil, but was an Israeli citizen as well. In 2003, he dispatches him to um, to Houston, Texas. And then he dispatches him? <laughs> yes. Uh, he sends him to Houston, Texas with an eye for buying up, you know, oil or, or hydrocarbon uh, exploration properties because he's predicting there's going to be a spike there, uh, I'm sure unrelated to the Iraq war. Uh, but so... <laughs> Uh, but so he dispatches him to to, uh, to Houston, Texas, and they found the Lior Exploration and Production LLC. And according to a write-up of this in a different Forbes article, um, Aguiar went out there when he was 26 years old. He met a geologist, um, and they they uh, they found this this field uh, according that this geologist recommended. Geologists are important. Yeah, that's basically what I've learned about commodities billionaires. <laughs> it's basically you meet the right geologist, it's like and big, then you make the fortune. But you have to satisfy big geology <laughs> first. I've I've come to respect geologists who just work at a university because they are setting aside <laughs> massive amounts of money. But so uh, they, they, uh, his nephew meets a geologist in Texas who recommends this field of natural gas. They buy it up and they find 2.4 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and then they sell it to a Canadian company in 2007. They sell it up for $2.55 billion. So this is his second major uh, uh, fortune. And according to this Forbes article, uh, his nephew, uh, um, Aguiar, Guma Aguiar, uh, he he says that he received two hundred million dollars of this two point five five billion dollar sale. So he sues his uncle, and then his uncle countersues him. And apparently, according to Forbes, uh, at this point Thomas Kaplan takes his nephew's mother off of the trust that is going to distribute their uh, two hundred million dollar share of it because he thinks his uh, his sister is siding with her son in their dispute. So he uh, steals money from them, and then of course his sister sues him. So it's this big family fallout over you know giving your nephew two hundred million when he just made you two point five five billion. But how it ends is uh, they're you know trading these lawsuits. And then, uh, according to Financial Times, in June 2012, uh, while these lawsuits are still all ongoing, um, Aguiar is... He disappears while boating off the coast of Florida. His body's never found. He was declared legally dead in 2015. They later found his boat with apparently his wallet, his phone, his keys in the boat. But it is just like... Uh, and, you know... Um, According to all these press accounts, he was having bipolar disorder or something. If you're having negative thoughts, uh, reach out. Um, you know, if if you're uh, in the way of a powerful figure with uh, covert state connections, <laughs> <laughs> don't keep that to yourself. Yeah, um, you know there are there are phone lines. 
hotlines you can call. Hmm. Um, but yeah, so his fucking nephew dies under mysterious circumstances that most people have ruled as suicide, but it is just kind of suspicious and weird that this happens in the middle of a legal battle with him. Um, but I guess with the time we should have left here, we, we should talk about uh, United Against a Nuclear Iran. And I mean, people with Mossad connections just, uh, you know, they just fall out of boats sometimes. The Robert know? Maxwell special. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, that's not at all a calling card of this organization <laughs> when it carries out assassinations, disappearing off boats uh, under circumstances that are later ruled to be suicide. It's like sometimes uh, people who uh, work in biological weapons for the CIA fall out of hotel room windows. <laughs> it's just a thing that happens. Um, but with with the time we have left, uh, United Against a Nuclear Iran is a very fascinating organization, uh, and I, I'm just going to quote a bit from uh, militarist-monitor.org. Uh, United Against a Nuclear Iran is founded in 2008. Uh, John Bolton helped found it. He was on its board up until he joined the Trump administration. Uh, kind of an interesting thing that Militarist, Moni- uh, Militarist Monitor lays out is that um, Russia apparently— United Against a Nuclear Iran does these pressure campaigns against different companies to, um, you know, pressure them to disinvest from Iran. It did it against some Iranian companies. And then um, he was doing this while he was doing balance ball gags on Fox and Friends. Uh, so United Against a Nuclear Iran tries to do an attack on some Russian companies for doing business with Iran. And actually, the uh, Russian, I believe, the foreign ministry points out that, well, uh uh, UANI, United Against Nuclear Iran, is a non-governmental org. Its leadership consists of influential figures in the U- in the U.S. foreign policy community, including former ambassadors and members of Congress. The fact that such letters are sent by the NGOs and signed by the people who call themselves ambassador only to only degrade the state of the American diplomacy. And you know that's actually uh, it's they only show the inability of Washington to comply with uh, its international obligations. And that's you know a fair point where United Against Nuclear Iran has all of these. Former Congress and Senators Joe Lieberman is a co-chair and uh, co- is a chairman of United Against a Nuclear Iran, notorious neoconservative hawk. Um, where they have all no, these... he was a Democrat for a minute. <laughs> but I guess what was weird about this military yeah, people say Al Gore wouldn't have taken us into Iraq. It's like, well, remember his running mate. <laughs> But what what is interesting about this is United uh, Militarist Monitor points out the Trump administration's State Department sent a tweet responding to these Russian allegations saying strong sanctions and economic pressure are working to isolate Iran's regime. Businesses worldwide should take note. The Russian government's attempt to intimidate uh, UANI and the CEO, Ambassador Wallace, are misguided and will not succeed. And I guess why this is significant is, you know, why is the State Department getting involved with this? Well, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the fact that John Bolton joined the Trump administration after being a founding board member of this, and according to Militarist Monitor, uh, John Bolton was paid uh, by a connected group, the Counter Extremism Project, uh, at least one hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars from September two thousand fifteen until he took his post as National Security Advisor in April two thousand eighteen, um, and also the connections to Republican donor Sheldon Adelson, who's one of the major funders of UANI. So I guess what I'm saying here: the deep it, state is an anti-Semitic trope. <laughs> You know, you have this organization where official government resources are clearly being used to protect it, uh, as we'll go through here uh, in just one second. But in Ju- uh, July 2015, uh, we, we've 
found out that in 2013, United Against a Nuclear Iran reported a $1.2 million budget. Uh, more than three quarters of that was given by Sheldon Adelson and Thomas Kaplan. Uh, in 2015, they had a $3.4 million budget. They upped their budget in order to oppose Obama's 2015 Iran nuclear deal, which you would assume United Against a Nuclear Iran would support, but you would be, <laughs> you would be naive to think their goal was to stop Iran from having a nuclear weapon. I guess to just kind of go through the connections here a little bit, in um, September 2017, uh, United Against a Nuclear Iran has these annual summits that they usually, uh, I guess the 2018 one, they held a few blocks from the United Nations where the annual General Assembly was in progress at the time. So they kind of like, you know, when Iran comes to the nuclear, uh, to the UN General Assembly, apparently they lobbied various hotels to not let the Iranian president stay there and just these kinds of like petty things. Um, but in the, uh, in the 2017, uh, annual meeting of United Against Nuclear Iran, Thomas Kaplan actually gives another speech, not I mean, the if one they had things their way. There probably would have been a drone strike right outside the UN. Uh, in the 2017 meeting, Thomas Kaplan gives another speech to it where uh, he sa- he talks about the principle of takia, or religiously sanctioned deception, um, which is the idea that uh, Muslims can deceive non-Muslims in order to uh, advance their own goals. And um, I'll just quote this thing he says here. The principle of takia, a religiously sanctioned deception, is nothing if not exquisitely functional. Thus, if there is a reward to come from being the guardians of Shia minorities, Iran positions itself as a protector of the Shia. Even with exotic variations on the theme, like the Houthis and the Alawites, it pays to play the nationalist card, to, quote, plant flags in Arab capitals as they are wont to boast. Then they do with the gusto of a Shoshanian Shoshansha. Damn it. Uh, it is not just in places like Bahrain, which is an unusual hybrid, but in Iraq, in which they are absorbing the parts of the country that they want in plain sight, like the uh, reticulated python digests a ghost, digests a goat, or Syria, where this subordinated... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Or Syria, where they have subordinated a uniquely cannibalistic regime, or Yemen, where they seek to install Hezbollah on the, uh, in order to be able to control access to the Red Sea. So what, what they're saying is that it's okay to um call a religious group deceptive and uh relate them to vermin um tell them say imply that because of um certain doctrines of their religion that they're willing to uh deceive outsiders and that makes it okay to um take extreme actions against people who are in that group is that is that um what what this guy is saying yes yeah. basically that yes yeah. um but so you know and it is something and it, uh, implying Mossad connections is anti-semitic <laughs> so the uh i mean they're just the uh, i mean to state it explicitly they're he he's using the language of anti-semitism in uh, against the enemies of Israel mm-hmm. like that is exactly what he's doing is he, he's you they're they're just yeah using the the same far-right rhetoric that it has was you know in the 20th century used against the Jews he's just using it against the Iranians and it's shamelessly mm-hmm. and that th- these are the type of people who are driving the current foreign policy 
Yeah, apparently at this uh, September 2018 meeting, this is the year after he gave the speech, uh, John Bolton, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo were uh, UANI's keynote speakers. Other speakers included the Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia, ambassadors from the UAE and Bahrain, the State Department's Iran point man, Brian Hook, uh, Joseph Lieberman. Uh, Apparently also in attendance was the director of Israel's Mossad spy agency. Who, among uh, as well as the foreign minister of of Saudi Arabia, the ambassador of UAE, all three of them called for regime change in Iran at this September 2018 meeting. Again, just blocks from and occurring concurrently with the UN General Assembly. Um, and so, you know, we've talked about. We won't go too far into it. Uh, all these different campaigns that. Uh, UANI launches to get businesses to divest from Iran. Um, the, the opposition to the Iranian nuclear deal, they said, quote, they would launch, they did. Uh, they called it, quote, a multi-million dollar ad campaign against the Iran nuclear deal in 2015, which is, you know, again, the irony of the Obama Justice Department intervening to protect this organization <laughs> from having to disclose any of its uh, donors or um, internal documents. Uh, while it's attacking their very act, the, the diplomacy that they're trying to carry out shows you the extent of the deep state in uh, modern existence today. I mean, it, Obama was nothing if not excellent at shooting his own policy in the foot. Uh, the board's membership, uh, again, according to Militarist Monitor, the board's membership has included a host of neoconservatives and right-wing nationalists, including Joe Lieberman, um, uh, James Wolsey, uh, a former CIA director and high-profile neoconservative activist, Roger Noriega, a former U.S. rep to the U.S. Ministry of the Organization of American States, um, Henry Sokolowski, a hawkish strategic weapons expert, Mike Gerson, a torture advocate and former spokesman for President Bush, Mark uh, Mark Logan, a former State Department official who later served as an aide to Gene Kirkpatrick at the American Enterprise Institute, and Otto Reich, a controversial Reagan-era figure implicated in the Iran-Contra scandal who maintains close ties to right-wing factions in Latin America. I love gold! (laughs) (laughs) But so... I guess what I'm getting at here is, you know, and also uh, former CIA director David Petraeus was invited to the conference either in 2017 or 2018. And, you know, we mentioned this intelligence program that uh, Kaplan and David Petraeus run together. David Petraeus has apparently also been on uh, the boards of his various nonprofits. Um, but I, I guess what I'm trying... That's try- the guy who tried to hide his affair using techniques that he learned from Al-Qaeda. Um, but, you know, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that UANI has a ton of fucking former or current Mossad and CIA and State Department and Iran-Contra freaks, uh, either on the board or advising it or being keynote speakers at its conferences. And for some reason, the U.S. Department of Justice feels the need to shield its records under state secrecy uh, uh, require uh, demands when private actors sue it. So I guess we can just kind of close out here by by telling the in brief the story of what exactly happened here because it is fascinating to me and it will leave you with a ton of questions. But so the the story in brief of of what happened here is a Greek uh, Greek shipping magnate named uh, Victor Restis uh, was um, put on. This list by United Against Nuclear Iran, accused of being a front for Iranian companies, he says he lost millions of dollars worth of business of this, and he even accused United Against Nuclear Iran of being a shakedown organization, which will accuse various businesses of doing uh, business with Iran and then demanding donations and cessation of contact in order to go away. Um, But just from... um, 
uh, this is the write-up in Militarist Monitor. Uh, Mr. Rest has said that uh, the group told him they based their accusations on, quote, valid research, credible, credible documents, distinguished relationships, and preeminent sourcing. Uh, in court, Mr. Ress has sued them for defamation and demanded the group disclose these documents and its relationships. Soon after that, Mr. Ress has said he was approached by an Israeli businessman, Rami Ungar, with no direct connection to United Against a Nuclear Iran. Uh, according to court documents filed by Mr. Restus's lawyer, Mr. Unger knew details about the case and said he was, quote, authorized to try and resolve the issues on behalf of the group's supporters. This is from the New York Times write-up, actually. So an unrelated Israeli businessman approaches him and attempts to resolve this issue with no apparent connection to United Against a Nuclear Iran. Again, not at all a Mossad front. Um, and then he said, Mr. Restus's lawyer said in a letter to the judge in April 2014 that they had uncovered information that United Against Nuclear Iran, quote, is being funded by foreign interests, unquote. They did not specify what that is. They tried in discovery to get donor records and other basic information from United Against Nuclear Iran. The Obama Department of Justice said this is a state secret, even though it's not supposed to be a uh, U.S. government contractor. And then uh, this lawsuit was dismissed on state secrecy grounds. The most transparent administration in American history. But it is just like, oh, he was also, as part of this lawsuit, he was attempting to uh, subpoena the testimony of that Israeli businessman who approached him, as well as uh, Mayor Dagan, the former chief of Mossad, who serves as an advisor to United Against a Nuclear Iran. So you, of course... Uh, wait, is one of the members a cartoon mayor? <laughs> <laughs> Mayer? Mayer here, Dagan? Here in Smile Town, why... <laughs> We like to be greeted by the friendly Mayor Doggin. He's a dog. <laughs> Mayor Doggin, uh, the former uh, Mossad chief and advisor united against nuclear Iran. Um, but, you know, of course, you just can't have these people giving depositions as part of a lawsuit. So the Department of Justice was able to assert state secrecy. And that's the end of all questions, <laughs> folks. You know, Mike Pompeo gives a speech to this group in 2018 and then pressures Donald Trump and to assassinate the second most powerful person in Iran, probably setting off in uh, a series of events that will result in a war with Iran, which this group and its funder, Thomas Kaplan, advocates for heavily. And which we'll means you should what? Buy gold. Yeah. <laughs> I love gold! <laughs> I gotta say, Kaplan is... Probably the worst literal grub staker we've covered. Yes, yeah, true. Yeah. We forgot to say that, yes. I guess last thing I want to mention, I know we've gone a little long here, but uh, there is an Intercept article uh, by Murtaza Hussein. Oh, I also want to shout out the journalist Eli Clifton. going to have to do a super cut of all the times you say. Now, I know I've gone a little long here, but I got one more thing. <laughs> Uh, I also want to shout... Don't say that... Don't apologize for going long. This is how long the episodes are. Yeah. Uh, I also want to shout out the journalist Eli Clifton, who did a lot of uh, work and was the person who originally published the document showing that uh, Thomas Kaplan, the Schedule B that United Against a Nuclear Iran filed with the IRS, showing that Thomas Kaplan and Sheldon Adelson provided three quarters of their funding. Um, But Murtaza Hussein also has a recent piece in The Intercept, which talks about, um, uh, as part of his charity... uh, um, 
Thomas Kaplan has this Panthera organization, which works for wildcat preservations. Uh, one of Panthera's many uh, local NGO partners is based in Iran, the small Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation. So he gives a donation to the Persian Wildlife Heritage Foundation. And then in 2017, he gives that speech talking about Takia or whatever Muslim deception and how they have to go destroy Iran. And so the people at this charity had no idea that he was like a psychopathic Iran hawk when they took that money from him. Uh, they sent some frantic emails being like, what, what the fuck is going on? Why is the person at the who leads the org that gave us this money, why is he advocating regime change in Iran? And then within a few months, uh, nine of them are arrested as spies by the Iranian authorities. Um, one of them dies in custody under m- mysterious circumstances. The others have been given sentences of between six and ten years. Uh, so y- you love science and cats and you want to make a living off of it and someone from another country says hey here's some money and you're like sure okay and then also the country that you live in is understandably uh terrified of being overthrown by america because it's already happened yeah. uh and so take some kind of uh extreme measures not humane not entirely justified but understandable considering the context and you get caught in the middle of that. Right. And, you know, according to this Intercept article and National Geographic wrote about this as well, it seems like these were just conservationists who just put some cameras to observe some cheetahs in their natural natural habitat in order to hopefully, you know, conserve their numbers. They're an endangered species. And Iran accused them of putting out these video cameras to, you know, spy on uh, missile sites or whatever it is. And, you know, where would they get this idea? Well, United Against a Nuclear Iran has bragged publicly that they insert spies into Iran. There was like a puff piece in the Free Beacon is a conservative rag uh, where they talked about, you know, United Against a Nuclear Iran has infiltrator. They got like a friendly source from United Against a Nuclear Iran to talk about, yeah, we have undercover spies that go to Iranian business conferences and observe businesses doing, you know, business with the regime so that we can build evidence against them. So it is something where if you're going to be, you know, Thomas Kaplan has this charity that uh, because his other, you know, Mossad front arm is bragging about they uh, insert spies into Iran, anything his charity funds is going to immediately be under a serious gun of suspicion by Iranian authorities. And understandably, and it's unfortunate, these, you know, innocent conservationists are paying the price because they took money that they thought was charitable giving without knowing that the fucking guy who gave it to them was a fucking psychopath. And the guy doesn't give a shit. I mean, he probably spent the last three days celebrating. He probably doesn't even think about these people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If anything, this benefits him because he can say the Iranian regime is detaining these innocent scientists. It gives him an even better cost's belly for war, you know, just putting these innocent people in harm's way. So uh, in conclusion, I I, I feel like it's uh, the only guy who uh, is running for president who is uh, spoke out unequivocally against escalating tensions with Iran and uh, against the assassination was Bernie Sanders. and I'm, I'm just going to do a little call to action. The uh, Iowa primary is just in a few weeks. Uh, volunteer however you can. I just volunteered. Um, it was not fun. People who say, oh, go volunteer. It's going to be fun. Um, maybe it is for them. Uh, but I was mostly cold and awkward asking people to sign things. But uh, it's not supposed to be fun. It's, uh, what you're supposed to do if you want to see things change. Mm-hmm. It so could be f- if you, I mean, if you do have fun, that yeah, doesn't fun, invalidate what your you. work. Yeah. Yeah. 
no uh go have fun if you can but um it doesn't uh i'm not gonna lie to you and say that it's it's always fun it's not always fun but it's uh something you should do no absolutely uh hopefully give money volunteer for bernie sanders um i hope we are able to stop this war with iran but by the time it comes out it this comes out it might already be on um, we, we just have to hope that, you know, cooler heads will prevail and that we can get this fucking maniac and his psychopathic advisors out of the White House as soon as possible. Yeah. Um, and, and I guess, you know, just last thing on Thomas Kaplan, I'll put in the uh, notes for this episode. Uh, Eli Clifton and some other journalists have gone through all of the links between his various charities and officials from United Against a Nuclear Iran. I'll put some of those sources in the episode, but I just want to say he meets with the crown prince of United Arab Emirates who we've again linked to slavery, uh, probably according to our BCCI allegations, uh, child sex trafficking, rape. Uh, he met with Crown uh, Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, in 2018, several months after Jamal Khashoggi was beheaded. Uh, they were uh, photographed in the Crown Prince's royal box at an automobile race in Saudi Arabia. So I guess my point is Thomas Kaplan is full of shit. Whenever he talks about human rights or, you know, a, a tyranny in Iran or wherever, he's full of shit because he loves these fucking UAE and Saudi despots. And uh, it, it is just something where he is one of those people who has steered U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East in a way that just benefits Israel, UAE, and Saudi Arabia that has absolutely no benefit for the average American citizen, makes us poor, gets countless innocent people killed, and I'm fucking sick of it being done in our name, and I hope, I hope we can try to start to do something to undo all the damage that has been done so far. In conclusion... I love gold! <laughs> All right, this has been Grubstakers. Thank you for listening. I'm Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Again, Happy New Year. Hopefully we'll be uh, back with a more peachy episode on the Patreon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.